0: Today, we'll be starting our first uh, sermon in a series on Acts, and we'll be taking our whole year all the way through next spring in the book of Acts. Let me just back up and say, Welcome to the 2017 18 school year. You guys excited? I am excited. Like it is getting real. You know what I'm saying? Ain't it getting real? Like Just seeing all you guys, especially, and and not to knock the people that have been here a while, but just to seeing the new students, man, I am just, I am pumped. Anybody else pumped? Excited? Happy? A little nervous? A little butterflies in the stomach, maybe? Okay. Okay. uh, and I was sharing with some of the students earlier, a lot of SUM students I see, they're posting on their Facebook these memes and stuff about how distressed they are about the new school year. I don't want that to be your testimony, okay, guys? I don't want it to be your broke, bust, and disgust, and you don't know what you're doing in the new school year, especially those of you that are coming back. That is not your testimony. That is not the testimony of the Chicago cohort. Your testimony is that you are ready. You are on fire. You are doing all things in excellence. You have your life in order so that you can take on what the, the new uh, class load that you'll be doing. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, we're going to start. Pastor Joe, our visionary leader, will be up in just a second to do our first... Uh, Sermon in a series on Acts. Super excited about that. I'm just, I myself will be uh, paying keen attention and I hope you all do as well. It's going to be awesome. Let's welcome our pastor. All
1: right. Thank you, Pastor Jared. Let's give it up for Pastor Jared and all the hard work that he's done along with Lauren and the others. We're so thankful that you guys are here. Open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. By God's grace, we're going to go through all 28 chapters of the book of Acts this school year. So this is the first time that I have undertook such a large exegetical book. We have done books before in our chapels, but this is a big one. This is 28 chapters. Now, I don't want you guys to feel any burden to try to have to keep up with the reading, but in your devotional time, if the Lord does lead you, start reading along with us. So we'll do a chapter a week. So this is going to be a lot different than what we're doing for Sunday, where we're doing basically a word or a verse, a service and we'll be in Ephesians probably for 10 years. But this is going to move a bit quicker because I do want to get it down uh, and, and done the school year. And so I figure you guys have close to about 36 weeks, three 12 weeks uh, trimesters, but some of these weeks you guys have breaks, so forth and so on. So it's 28 chapters, 28 weeks. Let's get into it. Are you ready? Wonderful. So let's look at Uh, And I always have my notes online. You guys know that as well for the sermons. And this will also be true for chapel. Now, when we look at the book of Acts, I want you to have some of the basic knowledge down, okay? The book of Acts is a book written by Luke. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He was a doctor by career. And we don't know much about his testimony or how he came to know the Lord, but he was a disciple. He was a companion with Paul. He kind of will let you know In the book of Acts, when he starts traveling with them, so the information he has up until that point is from what he's gathered from the other disciples. As well as the book of Luke, he's not one of the original disciples, so he got the information from the other disciples. Now when you look at historical works of antiquity, they say that Luke is one of the best. So he's right up there with the historians of Rome. He's right up there with the best of them. So he was a historian of the first order. He is one of the best for anyone wanting to know about the people of that time, not only the Christian beliefs, but how culture was at this time, the different cities, the different activities going on in the region. So he's a great historian. He's a doctor by trade. It comes out in his detailed uh, historical analysis. Uh, Basically, the theme of the book of Acts is the triumphant spread of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the name Acts is given by church tradition. He didn't call it that. We've called it that. And it's just short for Acts of the Apostles. And it talks about Jesus leaving, and that's what we're going to see today in chapter 1, and giving the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 to the church and what the church did from that point forward. The date of the writing is 63 A.D., So as you can see, it's about 30 years after Jesus has already ascended to heaven. Hence the reason when Luke actually joins with them in real time in the book of Acts, you will see him start to say, I and we, because he's present there with them. But as he starts Acts chapter one, he might not even have been a disciple at that point. We don't know, but those are the recollections he's getting from the other disciples. And we know that the main character of the book of Acts starting around Acts 9, is going to be the Apostle Paul for the rest of the 20 chapters. And we know by the time, uh, in the time of Acts chapter 1, which we're we're going to be reading today, Paul wasn't even a disciple. Paul was a follower of the Jewish tradition under Gamaliel, as you'll understand as we get into the book and see his conversion. So the book of Acts is is going to teach us about that. Now this comes, all this information from the Fire Study Bible. So as you do research, you just got to know where to get the information from. So I still do that. It's a good way to save time and really bring the information to a summary. So I'm just taking the background from them. We can look through this together. I'm going to read through it quickly. And then from this point on, this is not going to be very in-depth into the historical analysis of the, the book of Acts or the historicity of it. You can do that with commentaries. And as you begin to learn in your Bible classes, commentaries, are what scholars make to help us understand the historicity, the culture of the Bible. They go in depth sometime into the language and the different things that are happening. I just want to do this for the first chapter, set the stage, and very similar as we've been in our Ephesians series, start to get to where it applies to your life. Can I get an amen? So it's not going to have the feel of a class is what I'm saying. But this part may just for a little bit. So just follow along as I do some reading here. The book of Acts is a sequel or continuation of the Gospel of Luke. It's addressed to the same man named Theophilus, and we'll hear that in just a moment. And that really just means loved of God, Theo and philo- philo- excuse me, Theo. Phyllis, thank you, thank you. That means loved. So Theo means God, and Nephilis means loved, and so loved by God. So I got to slow down when I learn to speak these words, Theophilus. And then it goes on to say that it's written to him. And the opinion of the majority of the early Christians and the supporting evidence within the two books point to Luke, our dear friend, the doctor. And so we believe this is the author of Luke writing to Theophilus. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write Theophilus to fill a need in the church, particularly among the first Gentiles. Uh, These are the non-Jewish Christians throughout the Middle Eastern and Mediterranean regions of the Roman Empire. Remember, Rome is the empire at this time. Um, Luke's books provide a full and accurate account of the beginnings of Christianity. And here are some things just to remember. Number one, he's going to mention his former book. That's the gospel. Number two, his later book acts as an account of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And then it gives the account of the growth and development of the early church that followed. It's obvious that Luke was a skilled writer, a careful historian, and an inspired theologian. Now look at some of the things that the book of Acts is going to cover. The book of Acts covers selects portions of the first 30 years of the history of the Christian church. So it's going to cover a period of 30 years from the time that Jesus leaves um, until the end. And so Probably what he did when we see him join somewhere around the latter part is he started uh, writing from the beginning and then started taking all of the notes from the people and then completed it when Paul gets arrested. And then that's why it's written right around 63 A.D. because it's the first 30 years of the church. And um, the primary mission is the spreading of Jesus's gospel worldwide. As a historian Luke traces and spreads the uh, traces the spread of the message of Christ from Jerusalem to Rome that's where Paul's going to end up our main character pretty much for the last 20 chapters of the book of Acts in the process he mentions 32 countries 54 cities nine Mediterranean islands and 95 different persons by name and a variety of governmental officials by their specific titles Wow, isn't that awesome? Especially those of us who love history. This is an amazing book, right here. 32 countries are discussed. Fifty-four cities. This is the gospel being spread, these islands. And it wasn't just for the poor or for the religious. It also involved governmental officials. In addition to historical details, Luke insightfully describes the meaning and the importance of various experiences and events in the church's early years. So it's not just going to be of history, and it's not just going to be of what we would call instruction or a rather just... um, insight into their lives. It's also going to give us instruction. So it's not just uh, describing, descriptive. It's prescriptive. So write those two words down if you're taking notes. This is not just going to be descriptive of what they did. It's going to be prescriptive for what we should do as well. In the first stages, the New Testament were available in two collections, the first four gospels, and then the letters of Paul. And then it goes on to say, that this begins to add uh, the book of Luke to it. And so that's why Luke is written, to basically give you the in-between of the Gospels and the letters of Paul and to explain where it all came from. Now, everybody look up at me, please. I'm going to give you a very easy way to remember the introduction here to the book of Acts. Are you guys ready for it? The book of Acts is the Pentecostal handbook. This is the book for the Pentecostal to learn how to have church. This is our book. This book does not belong really to any other kind of Christian. The Roman Catholic Christian will not find any popes here. The Roman Catholic Christian will not find the prayers of Mary. They will not find the prayer to saints and statues. So this is not a Roman Catholic book. There is no pope here. This is not even a Baptist or a Methodist book you will not hear about boring meetings long uh, denominational meetings. You will not hear a lot about church polity. You will not hear about spirit light conferences. This is a book for the Pentecostals. This is a book that starts with the boom shakalaka power of God and ends with the boom shakalaka power of God and everything in between is what? The boom shakalaka power of God. It's a Pentecostal handbook. It is meant for those People who are alive and want to experience what the apostles experienced and what their disciples experienced. This is not for people who just want to be mere spectators. This is for people who want to get in the game, do what they did, and learn by their example how to see what they saw. As a matter of fact, everything, somebody say, everything. Every right and good thing taught in the book of Acts should be our inspiration today. Every single thing. They saw demons cast out, therefore go and do likewise. They saw the sick healed, therefore go and do likewise. They planted churches with leaders and made um, uh, disciples everywhere they went, therefore you go out and do likewise. Young and old, female and male. You'll learn about the seven... or the seven daughters but uh, the what number of daughters was it with Philip that four daughters, thank you, of Philip who prophesied. You'll learn about the married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who had church in their house. You'll learn about the uh, apologetic force of Apollo and his confrontation as well as Stephen with false uh, beliefs in the Jewish faith. You will see the rich give to the church, selling their own homes so that they can give to the church. People who had millions of dollars in today's money. You'll see the poor get healed and become great Great church planners and great missionaries, and set free and do the things of the gospel. So, this is the Pentecostal handbook. This is your playbook right here. This is it. And so for those of us that are coming back, you know, this is like my, I don't even know, I started Bible college in 96, and I've been involved in raising up ministers ever since then. So uh, probably like my 20th year, 21st year preaching and being around Bible college students and those who are called to the ministry, I don't care if it's your 21st time or if it's your first time here in the book of Acts, this is your time to get it on in Jesus' name. The Bible said to Queen Esther, for such a time as this she was appointed, to do the things of God in the kingdom that she was in, to to bring the kingdom of God to the world she was in. And for such a time as this, you are here and you are here. Each one of you are here to do the things of God. So I hope you're inspired by these disciples. I hope that they encourage you to dream big because it even says in Acts chapter 2, this is for all whom the Lord our God will call. It's for all the Lord our God will call. And that includes you. Are you called of the Lord? Amen. Then you're supposed to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says you will see dreams and visions, and you will see the power of God come to your generation. This is your time. It's your time to shine. Look at your neighbor and say, let's get it on. This is your time. Now let's go into this wonderful book. It is my objective to read it every single week from start to finish in the chapter. So every chapter I want to read from start to finish and then talk about some certain points along the way. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, who wrote the former book? What was his name? Luke. And what was the former book called? Luke. And it was a gospel. Now you're caught up. In my former book, Theophilus. And what does the word Theophilus mean? Loved by God. Thank you. Theo and Phyllis. I think you helped me there, Amy. Thank you. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his sufferings, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. How many understand you're starting to read a historical account? This is not myth. Sometimes people want to say Jesus is myth. That is not true. Jesus is no more myth than Caesar was myth or Alexander was myth. And they didn't attribute myths to Jesus either like they did world leaders. These things were attested by the people at that time. And the life testimony of Jesus still remains today by lives being changed, miracles happening in his name. What's beautiful about this is that he says he ended the book of Luke with all of these things. So the gospel of Luke was a standalone gospel that could be sent out to the churches, primarily to Paul's churches. This was probably what prompted him to write the gospel so that Paul's churches could have them. Because you have to remember, Mark's gospel comes from Peter's recollection. And then you have John's gospel and Matthew. And the world at that time didn't have internet. They didn't have fax machines. So how are you going to get that out? So Paul's starting places, uh, churches, where they've never been been. Peter's doing his work over there. So what do you do? You don't have a copy machine. You got to write your own so you can start handing them out to the regions you're in. That's probably what prompted Luke to do that. So it's a standalone gospel. But what he'll do for us in the, in, in the book of Acts is he'll give us just a little bit of the summary of what Jesus did right before he ascended to heaven. And that's what the chapter one today is going to be about. The last few moments that Jesus was with the disciples, the things that he said, and then what the disciples did in preparation for Pentecost, And so what we see here is that he tells us that the disciples, first of all, still needed more proof. Can you believe that? After all that Jesus had already said and done, he still had to give them more convincing proof. I wonder how many times they had to touch him to believe. I wonder how many more times he had to continue to expound on the scriptures to them. But this is what I believe he was doing. After the touching was done, after the Thomases had felt the wounds and all of those things, I really believe what became key to them was the revelation of scripture. Look with me to Luke chapter 24. The same gospel writer. Who wrote the book of Luke? Who wrote the book of Luke? And who wrote the book of Acts? All right, so this may explain what Acts was, what what, uh, Paul was saying here, or rather what what, uh, Luke was saying here, is that we were told that there was signs and proofs given to the disciples, but look at Jesus here and the kinds of proofs that he gave the people on the road to Emmaus that Luke records. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, talking about Jesus, explained to them What was said in all the scriptures concerning himself? Wouldn't you like to have a Bible study with the resurrected Jesus? How many think that would be a good Bible study? How many think that would bring to light Isaiah 53 in a whole other way? How about Isaiah 9? How about Isaiah 7? How about the book of Daniel? How about the promise given in the book of Genesis? So what do I think he did in the way of proof after they got done touching him? I believe for those 40 days as he was talking about the kingdom of God, he showed them the proof in the scripture. How do I know that? Because Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19 Look to 2 Peter 1.19. Peter was one of those disciples that were with him for 40 days. It says, "...we also have a prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you would do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Peter, just before this, said, We touched him. We were there. We know he raised from the dead. But he says, We also have the prophetic message, something that is completely reliable. So even Peter along with the other disciples, we're not just wanting to see the proof in their, with their eyes. They wanted to understand it as it pertained to the Scriptures. How does it work that God became man? How did the prophets understand this? Where are the prophecies throughout the Scriptures? How does this fulfill the law of Moses? For 40 days, Jesus gives them these convincing proofs, not only with the physical, but with the teaching from the Old Testament. And then we see that everything Jesus talked about during these 40 days had to do with the kingdom of God. Everybody say the kingdom of God. Thank you. Look to that bottom part of the verse here. Verse 3, he appeared to them for a period of over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So what are you speaking about today? What are you going to school for? Your kingdom or the kingdom of God? How are you going to raise your family, for the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? Everything you do needs to be kingdom filtered. Every parable Jesus taught about was about the kingdom. Jesus has his heart set on the kingdom. The Father promised him this kingdom. In the book of Daniel, in the book of Matthew, he says now all authority has been given unto him. And for these next 2,000 years, we enforce the kingdom until he comes and judges the world and sets it up once and for all. You are literally an ambassador of the king until he comes. You are to spread the gospel message through the church and build the church with Christ as a co-laborer for the kingdom of God's sake. And it's not just for the five-fold ministry, it's for everybody because he said, seek first in Matthew six thirty-three the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So the businessman must be kingdom-minded. The doctor must be kingdom-minded. The janitor, the garbage man, the teacher, the lawyer, the baker, the candlestick maker, everybody must be kingdom-minded. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Let's keep going. Verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, and notice he was eating with them. This is the resurrected body that now can eat food, walk through walls, no longer be put to death, but is very true to human nature, similar to what Adam and Eve had received. This is why he had to raise physically from the dead to give us back a physical body that could live forever in the kingdom to come. You are not meant to be a disembodied spirit in eternity in heaven. That is a temporary place until the kingdom comes. And so this shows us while Jesus was literally with them on earth what the kingdom will be like. He was our first fruit, the Bible says, and now we proceed after him in resurrection to have an eternal body, a glorified body. And this body could eat. And some people might ask, well, did that body have waste? I don't think it did. I think that body could miraculously digest food without waste. I also don't think it was made of blood. I believe that blood came after the fall because the Bible says that uh, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So I believe this is a body without blood. And you might be able to ask the question, what flows through the veins then? I think it's glory. I think it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit that flows through the veins and gets whatever nutrients it needs from the earth and whatever it doesn't need, it just evaporates, burns up in some way. We will understand. And I do believe we will understand. I believe everything God does is logical and will be understood by what we call the inductive method. Just right now, we can't understand. We're in a a dim, uh, we're seeing it through a dim glass. We can barely make it out through all the fog and all the, 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 the blurriness of the human flesh. But we will see that everything God does is based in science and logic and all of those things never contradicting each other but he's the source of logic and science can I hear any amen to that amen on one occasion while he was eating with them he gave them this command do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about for John baptized with water but in a few days you will be baptized with what the Holy Spirit you'll be baptized with what The Holy Spirit, thank you. This is the important message we must understand as Pentecostals. We don't just believe in a baptism of water that symbolizes repentance, as John the Baptist did, and Jesus kept that tradition going. We baptize now in his name, though, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. But once again, that's signifying new birth from repentance. We don't only believe in that. We also believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fuego and of fire. It's also in Luke's gospel that he talks about this more than any of, their, of the gospel writers. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now we know the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for regeneration. And Luke chapter and uh, John chapter 20 verse 22 Jesus breathes on them in, an, in a post-resurrection encounter. This is during that 40 days and he says receive the Holy Spirit. They had already been born again. What he is talking about now is an endowment of power. Acts chapter 2 records not the disciples being born again, but them being baptized in the Holy Spirit born of the Spirit happened in John chapter 20 verse 22 after his resurrection and this completes the thought of John which has him beginning to speak about being born again in chapter 3 and it concludes in chapter 20 with him giving the Holy Spirit so they can be born of the Spirit and John also starts in a very similar way with the Word being God and coming in the flesh and then at the end of John he is being worshipped as God in the flesh by Thomas he says my Lord and my God. These are called the bookends of the book. Then they pull things together from the front to the end. And we understand John teaches the born again experience happened while Jesus was with them. But what he's telling them to do to wait is for that baptism of power. Never let it be confused as other denominations try to do and call the baptism of the Holy Spirit another work of salvation. Something that pertains to you being saved. That when you were saved you were baptized in the Spirit. And baptized in the Spirit means you were saved. It is not the same thing. Now, we don't believe you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking other tongues to be saved, but it is subsequent after salvation. It is not the same language, exegetically speaking, hermeneutically speaking, it is not the same experience. And I have an entire article written just on that. If you look here, there's a place to highlight and read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a unique experience after salvation, evidenced by speaking in unlearned languages or the word we use, tongues. Tongues represents more of an old English word for languages. And sometimes we as Pentecostals still use it. But it really simply just means languages, spiritual languages. Everybody get that? Don't be Turned off by tongues, thinking that it's something weird. It's just God giving you heavenly languages. Now let's keep going. Chapter 6, chapter 1, verse 6. They then gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now notice, Jesus talked to them about the kingdom of God for 40 days, and they still did not understand the purpose of the church bringing forth the kingdom before judgment came and made Jerusalem uh, Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon, and then making Jerusalem the center of the world, and him reigning on a throne as the Davidic king. They still didn't get it. I was talking to a Muslim, and he said, after they... uh, have these revelations of him being Jesus, uh, him being God throughout the New Testament. Why don't they just start worshiping him as God from that point on, singing hymns to him and writing stuff? I'm like, because they didn't believe it. They didn't even believe it after the resurrection. They have to touch him. The book of Acts even goes so far to say after the 40 days, they still didn't understand. Now they believe he's God, by the way, but they still didn't even understand the kingdom role of what he was there to do. He wasn't there first and foremost to be God among them, to be worshiped. That comes in the second coming. What he was there to do was to be the suffering servant, the Lamb of God slain for our sins. It literally took them the entire 40 days to know he was God in the flesh. And right here now, they're like, okay, Lord, Yahweh our God, when are you going to rule over these people? Tomorrow? Next week? When are we doing this? And he's telling them, no, I've got to go. Now, we know there's entire chapters, discourse. He's already given them on this. in John, it's good that I go. He's telling them that I have to go, that I can send another in my name, the Holy Spirit. And yet they're still asking him, when are you going to do this? Now, verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, now look what he does he just goes right to the next thing they're they're wanting to start ruling and reigning they want the party to happen they want to have the celebration of Isaiah all of these prophetic promises to come true like I said Jerusalem become the center of the world everybody flocking to Jerusalem to see the Messiah the kingdom of God among men and he says it's not about that right now but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will Will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Can I get a Pentecostal? Amen. Come on, I didn't say a Presbyterian. Amen. Can I get a Pentecostal? Amen. 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 Say it like you're up this afternoon. That's the Pentecostal motto power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. The speaking in tongues is not just to have esoteric or spiritual experiences. It's not to distinguish us from others. It's not to be just a mark of weirdness or awkwardness upon our services. It is a mark of power. It is empowerment to be gospel preachers and witnesses for the glory of God. Much work has been done on the word power and the word witness. We don't have time to get into it, but this is explosive power, energy on the inside of you to fuel you, to motivate you, to give you the words to speak, to actually put a smile on your face in chapel, to pretend like you want to be here, that kind of power, the kind of power to help you, to motivate you and to do supernatural things through you. And the word witness, there's where we get the word martyr from in the Greek language, witnessing even unto death. So Help me, God, as we would say in the American mindset as you would swear upon the Bible. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God. God, may I be a gospel witness for you everywhere I go. So help me, God, even unto death. And we know most of them gave their lives for Jesus. Number one that we realize here is that we're supposed to follow the signs but not be concerned with the exact time. Somebody say, follow the signs and don't worry about the time. So Jesus had already given them the signs. You can find it in Matthew 24 and the other Gospels. Luke and Mark, they have them. He said, watch out for the the Antichrist, the false Christ, rather, and then the wars and rumors of wars. Those are going to be your signs to know the time is coming. We may be getting really close right now, or it may still be a few years off. I don't know, but you need to be ready when that trumpet sounds, amen? So whether it's in a few years or 200 more years, are you ready to be filled with power and be a witness for Jesus Christ? That's what his point was there. And then the next thing that you see is what we are as Pentecostals, empowered to be witnesses for Jesus. So is it any surprise that as a Chicago Pentecostal church, we are one of the most, if not the most Uh, evangelistic church, and if not the most, one of the most discipleship-based churches. Shouldn't that that be said of every Pentecostal church? Should Pentecostal churches be known just for our exuberant worship? That's fine to have it, but it doesn't say that's the mark of the real church. Does it say we should have the best conferences or the coolest speakers? No, the mark of a Pentecostal church are those endued with power to be witnesses and making disciples that make disciples. Just put together Mark 16 here. Put together Matthew 28, the Great Commission, the last words of Jesus in those Gospels. It teaches us what Jesus was saying. And by the way, don't get confused about different things that Jesus is saying in different Gospels. Think of it as surround sound. Mark is your left front, John is your right front, Luke is your right rear, Matthew is your left rear, or whatever one I forgot, Luke is your right rear. You know what I'm saying? Think of four Gospels as four sounds. Jesus was alive for three and a half years. All the words you have in red in your four Gospels, a man could say within three days. What do you think he was doing for three and a half years? He was repeating himself, saying things differently. They're not contradictions. They are complementary to each other. Do you understand that? That's why if you read the Beatitudes in one gospel and another, it may be said a little different, just how I say things a little different. Like I said, all the words of Jesus in the gospel could be said by you on an average day within three days. But he's talking for over 700 days For over a thousand days, rather. And what is he saying? He's saying the same thing over and over again. Some gospel writers took these parts of it. Others took these parts. Led by the Holy Spirit. Not contradiction. They are in complementary nature like surround sound. Amen? And I said all of that to say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is power to win souls and make disciples. We're just in verse 8, and I only have about 10 minutes left. So help me, God. Come on. Help me right now, Jesus. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Isn't that a wonderful sight? The ascension of Jesus Christ. Maybe as many as 500 people saw this ascension. These people died for what they believed in. Remember, people will believe in things that could be considered make-believe, but no one will die for what they know is a lie. So these Christians were not dying for what they hoped was true. They were dying for what they knew was true. It's a difference. The Muslim may think if he blows himself up in jihad, he'll have virgins. But remember, he doesn't think he's lying to himself. He's just hoping that that is true. The the idea is that maybe the Christians were doing the same thing. No, 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 no. This is different. They weren't hoping it was true. They were saying it is true. I have saw him. You can kill me. You can kill my family, but I cannot deny him no more than I can deny two plus two equals four. And literally, if you would have put them on a lie detector test, and even out of fear, if they would have tried to deny, it, you would still see they were telling a lie. If they were scared, no, he didn't, he didn't go to heaven, no, he didn't, it would show up as a lie. Just as you know, you can't deny two plus two is four. You could say, well, it's five, it's five. You could try to convince us, but a lie detector test would tell us that you're lying. Now, thankfully, none of these men even lied. They died being faithful witnesses. Why? Because they were filled with the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit. They lived and died for Jesus Christ. They were witnesses. And Paul, as we'll learn later on, the same thing. He staked his whole life on that. I was a Jew. I am killing Christians. I have nothing to do with this false religion. It is a cult in my mind. And then I am knocked off my ride, knocked off my donkey, and all of a sudden I see the one that I had been persecuting, and I become blind for three days. And he speaks to me, and I get healed, and now I'm an apostle. And you can kill me. You can behead me as he was by Nero. But that won't change the fact of what I saw and what I know is true. Amen. Amen. And so he was taken up to heaven before them and boop, just two angels just show up right next to and be like, hey, what are you guys looking at? You know, this is amazing. These angels come and tell them it's, it's over now. I mean, the work of Christ in that way, it's done. Stop looking at the clouds and we should be the same way. Stop waiting for your pie in the sky. Stop waiting to cash in your ticket to heaven. A lot of Christians want to go to heaven, but God wants to put heaven on earth. You understand, a lot of people on earth want to go to heaven, but God wants to put heaven on earth. Isn't that what he taught us to pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom Come, not take me up, beam me up, Jesus. No, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do I believe that we'll be in heaven? Yes. Do I believe in the rapture? Yes, that God will take us away before the seven years of tribulation and judgment and all of that. But right now, it's not about that. He said, focus on the harvest field for the harvest is great. The laborers are, are few. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Get the power. Start being a witness here and go out and change the world. And what that simply meant in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world, just look at it as it where you live. If Jerusalem was where they lived. Judea was their suburbs. Samaria was the surrounding cities, uh, the surrounding city with a little bit different of a culture, and then the other most parts of the world. So God wants you to reach Chicago, the suburbs, the surrounding cities in the Midwest, and the world. Can I hear an amen? And so, what we see is that the ascension is the last proof of Jesus' role as the God man. You could not hold him down, in other words, you couldn't hold him down. He wasn't just a good man, he was the what kind of man? The God-man, and you can't hold the God-man down. Now, some of you are not old enough to remember you can't hold a good man down, but I think some of the other ones might remember those sayings. But here you can't hold the God-man down. He's meant for glory. He's going to go back to glory. They got a little peek boo of that on the mountain of transfiguration, but he had to go back. And the Bible says it was good that he went so that the Holy Spirit could come and empower all of us. So it's a sign, and it was the last of his, his work. So if you ever want to tell the full story of Jesus in a summary form, you can say it's his virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his burial and work in, in the grave in Hades, his resurrection on the third day, his 40 days of instruction to the church, and his ascension to heaven. And we know that he made it there because 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in his name. And this is another thing just to remember, is that any time you hear anybody say, I'm Jesus, and, you know, normally they tell a story like, I was out one day praying. Many of them come even from Christian backgrounds, like the Assemblies of God. Jim Jones was an Assembly of God minister, similar to our belief system here. Or like Apollo Quiblo in the Philippines. They'll say something like, I was a pastor, I was a Christian. And then Jesus told me, he came upon me like the Holy Spirit would come upon disciples. And now he made me, Jesus, to this people, to this generation. So the Spirit of Jesus is now here in me, liar, liar, pants on fire. The the angels were very clear. When Jesus comes back, the whole world will see him in the clouds. That is not figurative language because he figuratively was not taken up in the clouds. This is literally, he's literally going up and ascending to heaven. And the Bible says he will literally come the same way. And Jesus, even knowing that these things would come, warned us and said, do not listen to anybody who says, I'm over here. Jesus is over there. Or they tell you that I'm over there. Don't listen to them. Because as the sun rises and sets, as it goes from the east to the west, that's how the son of God is going to come back. Everybody will see him. Can everybody see the Sun today? On this side of the planet, they can, and all it takes is whoop, one little lap around, and they'll see him on that side. Jesus will make his circuit on his way down. Verse 12 and onward. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, and that's where he's coming back, is it not? Did it not say in the book of Revelation, where is he coming back to? The Mount of Olives in the clouds, and he'll split it in two, the Bible says. A Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. This becomes the famous upper room on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Those who were present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Remember, there was two Judases. They all together join constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. The whole family is there. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, become fellow apostles and write two books of the Bible, James and Jude. The women are there, and they become great leaders in the church, and the disciples are there. Do you want to be named among the disciples of Christ? Do you want to be praying with the disciples of Christ? Amen. That should be your testimony because before God does anything great upon the earth, he gathers his disciples and he has them pray. God won't do anything upon this earth for his church without first coming through the prayers of his disciples. Now, yes, he can do judgment and things like that, but I'm talking about the actual building of the church he does through the prayers of his people and through the work that they do. He determined that to be so. He could have used angels to preach and we wouldn't have a Bible college today. We would just hang out with the angels whenever they wanted to come down and tell us the story. But he said, I want you to do this, to have the same authority that I have to be given to you in my name. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. And we know at this point, Peter is the leader figure. He's not a pope. He's just looked at as the leader. But as time goes on in the book of Acts, you'll soon see Jesus' half-brother, James, becomes the official leader of the church of Jerusalem as Peter starts to go out and preach. So there's no pope here. But Peter is a leader among them, probably the one that had the greatest insight because he had been wrong so often. And that's why I'm patient with you guys because I was wrong a lot. And then God has made me a leader. And I know I can relate to Peter in that way. So Peter got called Satan because he had the whole plan of redemption wrong. And so it's okay if every now and then you get rebuked because God can still use you. Amen? The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter didn't quit, Judas hung himself, as you're about ready to hear, and then he bust headlong. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. That's where we get to 120 of the upper room. And said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke a long time ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Now understand how they understand scripture. You should understand how they understand scripture. They believe scripture was the word of God. You believe scripture is the word of God. We have... The Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate probably even the scrolls they had in their hands at that time. Isn't that amazing? Around the 1950s, we found scrolls that predated Jesus by about 100 years, and they're accurate to what you have in your hands right now. You can trust the Bible. Jesus took the Bible serious. The disciples took it serious. and As you can see, they're going to start pulling out passages to start to frame what they must do, and we should do the same. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received of his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, his intestines spilled out. Some people see this as a contradiction because the gospels say he hung himself, but here he falls headlong and his, bur- his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Well, this is very simple. If a man hangs himself in a field and no one's there to cut him down, what's eventually going to happen to the branch he's on? It's going to fall down. And probably because they thought he was so cursed of God, both Jew and... And Christian no one ever probably went there to get him for many many days and birds might have eaten away at the rope or eaten away at him and start taking away parts of his his body and head until it slipped through and then it busted more open I mean who knows what happened but I believe what the Bible says and once again it's not contradictory it's complementary. everyone in Jerusalem heard about this so they called that field in their language which means the field of blood now, verse 20, for Peter said "Is written in the book of Psalms. May his place, home or habitation, be deserted. Now, you have to understand, it took me about 15 minutes to find this out in commentaries because the NIV mistranslate this. I should have just checked in other translations. Whenever you're a little bit stuck, look through other translations first, then consult commentary, especially reliable ones like NIV, ESV, New King James, New American Standard, NET, etc. Because it says, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, And the next verse they take out of a a psalm is, may another take his place of leadership. Well, it almost seems like a contradiction. May his place be deserted. May another take his place. Do you see it? Some of you aren't paying attention. Isn't it something when pastor asks you to pay attention, you get caught off guard? You should pay attention. What does it say right here? May his place be what? Okay, what does the next part say? May another take his place. took me 15 minutes to figure it out. Which one is it? May his place be deserted or may another take his place? Open up your Bible. Read it. Read it right now, quickly. Don't just stare at me. Read your Bible before I give you the answer, which you probably could see if you were paying attention, but we're going to see now if you were Open up your Bible and start giving me the explanation to this passage, lest someone whip you over the head with it and tell you your Bible contradicts itself. Okay, Julian, your turn. Is this place supposed to be deserted or is another going to take his place? Okay, but then it says, May his place be deserted. Which one is it, Ulysses? Blank stairs. Got you caught on the first day. Catch a chapel licking. Good rebuke. Look back up at the board and this time pay attention. Home or habitation is the definition of the word place. The NIV, as I was saying before, some of you drifted off, had mistranslated it. It shouldn't say place in the same sense that the other psalm is saying place. The word place here is not the same word in the Hebrew. The word place here literally means home. In the other place where it says place, it means leadership position. It should be read like this. May his home be deserted, but may another take his place of leadership. Now, if you have a different translation of the Bible or know how to use your Bible app, quickly check me. Don't just take my word. Look at ESV, New American Standard, King James, the things I was saying before I caught you not paying attention. What version of the Bible do you have, Lawrence? NASB. Would you read it nice and loud, please? Wonderful. Isn't that something? Let his homestead be deserted. Let no one live in it or dwell in it. And may another one take his office. So because the NIV was lazy here and didn't do its job using the word place two different times, it actually caused a contradiction that does not exist in the Bible itself, the original Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, the word for place in the first part literally means home. Should have been translated that way. And the word for place in the second part literally means office or place of leadership. Now, do you understand? Isn't it good to pay attention to your pastor when he reads the Bible? So now they have a problem. Judas has killed himself. He's busted headlong. He looks like the walking dead somewhere out there in a field. Paul sa- uh, Peter says, the Bible says... His home's gonna be empty. This field is cursed in one sense in that way. But we need to fill his office. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord was living among us, beginning from the John's at the time of John's baptism when Jesus was taken up, and then from when Jesus was taken up from us. Excuse me, let me read this better. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, which means son of justice, or, or it means justice, but it means son. Bar there means son. Sabas means the guy's name. He's the son of Sabas. And by the way, they still name people like this in Iceland. I was watching the, um, the CrossFit games, and her name was literally Bethany, Son of Mike. And her last name was Son of Mike. That's how they lit, oh no, Mike's son. that's how they named Mike's son. And there was another one there, and her name was like Michelle, Bob's son. And I looked it up and that's how they give last names. is you take the first name of your father and then put son or, or daughter. sorry. It was Bob's daughter, Bob's daughter. You can look that up. Not now, but look it up. And that's how they named people back then. So it was Son Bar Sabas, Son of Sabas also known as Justice, so he must have had a nickname. And then Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's hearts. Show us which one of the two you have chosen. Take over his apostolic ministry, which Jude, let him take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then he cast the lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 disciples. Here's the one time that I believe the disciples were wrong in doing something in the church. So remember I said at the very beginning, everything they did right, we should do right. As you go through the book of Acts, you'll see sometimes where they do something wrong. Just like David had an affair and it was wrong. Just like Saul started going to the witch of, went to the witch of Endor to meet with Samuel. Wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Now, my opinion is not necessarily the majority opinion. Some of the scholars think that this was right. Others in the minority position are like me. It's not an issue of salvation. You can form your own opinion. And be prepared to do that in Bible college. Form your own opinion about these kind of issues. Why do I think it wasn't Matthias? Well, first of all, I don't believe God wanted them to draw straws that was a tradition of the old testament saints because they weren't indwelt with the holy spirit in the same way and they were supposed to do this when someone like moses wasn't able to make the decision for them this is what the priests were supposed to do with the urim and thummim and the different things that they had it may look a little bit like sorcery but it was just god's way of letting them use cultural things to make decisions and they were never supposed to be decisions just far out in the open it was really when there was a tie of a decision so it's not like do we worship god or we worship baal Let's roll the dice. It was literally like this. We have two men that meet all of these qualifications, and we just can't decide between two good things, in other words. But I don't believe Jesus wanted them to do that. So I don't think the qualifications were even necessary. And why do I believe that? Because I believe Jesus chose Paul. Jesus personally chooses Paul. When we look at Acts 9 15, look at the same words there. We see the word chosen. Acts 9, 15, when Paul met Jesus and was blinded, God sent Ananias to go help him. And he said to Ananias, go, this man is my what? Chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So yes, there's a little bit of controversy here. You can talk about it now at lunch with your friends. What do you think? Is it Matthias or is it Paul? When it comes to the 12 thrones that the disciples will sit on and rule Israel, from Israel, rule the world, will it be Paul or will it be Matthias? The names written on the foundational stones of New Jerusalem, will it be Matthias or will it be Paul? My guess is that it's going to be Paul. It doesn't matter for the big picture, but it's just good to know. Now, put it all together and all the things that we learned today. We've learned that the most important thing Jesus wanted us to focus on was the power of the Holy Spirit. And so just right where you're at, we don't have to make this a long time of prayer because I know we have to respect the classroom. Let us just open our heart to Jesus. I know most of you, if not all, are already baptized with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. If you're not, Today is your day, but I believe all of you are, if not just maybe for a few. But right now, just ask the Lord to fill you with his power to be a witness. We don't have to be loud. We can do that later. But right now, just in your heart, capture the heart of God for Acts chapter 1. What were we supposed to get from that today? We're supposed to get that Jesus wants us to be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit to be his witness. Right now, in the name of Jesus. If there's any of you that haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit with speaking in other tongues, would you just raise your hand right now? All right, lay your hands upon this sister right here and just start to pray for her. Let's get one of our other sisters to join her. Jackie, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? right. Would you just come and lay your hands on Amy right now? And we're going to pray, and the rest of you start to pray in the Spirit. Right now we pray for Amy to be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues right now in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. As we continue to pray, Joe B., would you end our live session? Thank you for joining us live. Next week will be Acts chapter 2. Father, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit on our dear sister as well as all of us right now. Fill us, fill us, fill us again and again. You said for us not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a continual overflowing fashion. Just as I was in the river the other day with my daughters, being swept down the flow in the kayak, being driven by the current. May our hearts and lives be driven by the current